This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. So we've been preaching this thing called tapestry, looking at things that separate us inside the church. Aaron spoke on sexism. Then he spoke on racism. Those was good. Discussion midweek was good, real good. And today I'm going to be speaking on classism. So I'm going to jump right into it. We are well spent on time. So, so you know, ahead of time, we're going to be in Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. So you know ahead of time. So like I said, I'm, we're talking about class, separation in the church, in society, through class and how that affects us. So class is the system of dividing society into groups, a separation based on education, occupation, and then primarily race. Now, I mean, primarily wealth. This is regardless of race, age, gender, there's this separation that goes on. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to break that down a little bit so we know where we sort of fall at based off of these categories. Then we're going to dive into the script, cool? All right. So first there's lower class. Lower class or the poverty level of people. Homelessness, unemployment, people with poor or no education, people on government assistance, oftentimes called the underclass or the trash of society. That's lower class. Next you have the working class. The working class breaks down into two groups. You have the working poor. The working poor, they have minimal education, some. Some education. Most of their jobs are manual labor jobs with little to no prestige, little to no opportunity for advancement. Most of the time, you're just going to be working hard, bro. That's working poor. Then you have the blue-collar workers. Blue-collar workers, they make oftentimes more money than a lot of people in middle class. Their issue is that most of their jobs require too much manual labor. It's physically taxing and dangerous. This is the working class groups. Then you have middle class, a.k.a. white collar workers. This, again, is divided into two levels according to wealth, education, and prestige. The two levels are lower middle class. and lower middle class, they make a little less money than the upper middle class at the other side. And they have a little bit less education, but these are the people that are like the, the managers and supervisors at your jobs. Some of them are small business owners, and this is the lower middle class. Now, the upper middle class, they have more education. This is the they're, they're highly educated professionals with high income. They are like doctors and lawyers, and they make a good chunk of money. This is upper middle class. Then we get to the upper class, a.k.a. the rich. About 1% to 3% of the population fit into this category. We call it rich. They still break down into two groups. You have the lower, upper class, who became rich through what's known as new money. This means they made investments inside this day, this lifetime, their life, where they was able to get rich off of. That's that new money. Then you have the upper, upper class, who spend that old money. Most of them didn't have to work for that money. It's been their family for generations. People that has made a lot, a lot of money, they don't have to work for it. Their kids aren't going to have to work for it. That's the aristocratic society, the high society. Now, we just went from lower class to working class. 
with the working poor and the blue collar workers to middle class and white collar workers with the lower middle class and the upper middle class to the upper class with the new money of the lower class and the upper class with the old money of the upper upper class showing all the different ways that we are separated through classism in society and unfortunately too often in the church. A lot of different classes, right? But this isn't this isn't like new news. This isn't something brand new that, that we've struggled with just here in the 21st century. This isn't like just us in America that's dealt with it. This is something that, that Jesus in the Bible deals with pretty frequently, actually. This, the thing is that in the Bible, Jesus deals with the dysfunction and the relationships of people with different financial statuses. It's just that it simplifies to just two terms, rich and poor. Rich and poor, and that's how he deals with it. Rich and poor. He, like, eliminates the middle section. Like, he just don't like nothing lukewarm. It's a middle eight, a middle, middle section growing. And when we look at that, we eliminate the middle class. We eliminate the middle section. And we see where did we fall at, right? When we eliminate the middle section, we look at the, the rich, the one to three percent, the ones with the mansions and, the, and everything else. They consider themselves rich or they called rich. Then you look you would say everybody else then would fit into the poor category if we look at it inside that perspective. We eliminated the middle class, right? And then the Bible zooms in on the heart of the rich, and he calls the rich to accountability over and over and over again. We see stories where the rich are ignoring the, the sufferings of the poor, even right outside of their doorsteps going to and from, but not stepping, stopping to say, listen, I need to do more. We see stories in the Bible where the rich are turning down fellowship with Jesus because they may infringe on their finances. Jesus himself says that it's easier for a camel to make it through the eye of a needle needle than a rich man making it into heaven. We ourselves see on TV and on the internet and we read about it in magazines, even may know people that we feel fit into this category, this 1% to 3% that we call rich. We look at how they complain about the woes that seem so trivial. Thus, we sit in judgment on how we feel that they should be spending their money, hoping and praying that they would hear how these scriptures really speak to them. But the reality is this, if we were to take off our own first world lenses of Western culture, step back and look at ourselves with the third world lenses of the rest of the world, a.k.a. the majority of the population of the planet, we will see that most of the things that we complain about and bellyache about regarding money and the things that's bought with money are only first world problems and the other 85% of the planet calls you and me rich. They, they only wish that they can complain about parking too far away from the door, whether or not Walmart has their style of milk, or they only drink almond silk vanilla. They only wish that. The reality is most of us fit into this category of rich way more than we think, but it's hard to see it when it's in comparison to that 1% to 3%. So we say that 1% to 3% sets the standard of what rich actually is. Or we're looking at our own financial struggles that we've been going through too. Like, 
You don't know how hard it was to make rent this week. You don't know how hard it was to keep my bills paid this week. And then I would have the audacity to come up here and say, hey, most of us inside this room will probably fit into that category of rich. I would. I do. The reason being is that the question isn't how much we have or have not in our bank accounts, but instead how have we stewarded that which is God's that he has placed in our possession? which is greatly impacted on how we view God versus how we view money. At the end of the day, none of this is ours. Everything is God's, and we are but stewards. That's how it is at the end of the day. But we, we have a tendency to forget that reality. So we're going to dive in. We're going to look at classism from that perspective. So if you turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 16, and we can all stand together. We're going to read this through, verses 1 to 13, and then we're going to dive in and break it down a little bit. Okay. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and the charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is it that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and write 50. Then he said to the other, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill, and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in the dealings with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, Make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. And the one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other. He will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Grab your seats. Stay down. So what I'm going to do, I'm gonna, we're going to dive in. With the, we're going to camp out here for a bit and just look at what, what God is saying in this. So verse 1, and I'm going to read it over. Verse 1. There was a rich man who had a manager, and the charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. First and foremost, there's a couple of times in Scripture where Jesus gives these illustrations of a guy that owns a lot, and he gives his stuff to others to steward, and he comes back, and he checks on them. The underlining thing here that Jesus is making the point about as he talks to his disciples, he's always talking to the disciples about it. The underlining thing here is that the guy that owns everything, the rich guy that owns everything is God, right? And then the manager, the one who manages and masters the property and finances, that's us. 
all right? Because back in the days, he put us in there. He gave us dominion over the entire world, right? Over all the things, of the, all the non-human part of the earth. So we are the managers. We are the guys that are the stewards in all these stories. And the person that owns everything in all these stories is God. That's the underlying thing there. And it says, wasting his possessions, being poor stewards of God's resources, money, etc. So, and he calls him, he said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be a manager. So he said, listen, I want to see the books of everything that you've been doing. Let me see the books. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow up on you to see how you've been handling my resources. You will no longer be manager. And what that means, if he's no longer manager, he, he will likely be kicked out. So that's going to be a problem. Verse 3. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. That's the dilemma. He realizes there's a problem. If I lose my job, if I kicked out, I'm too lazy to work really hard, and I'm too proud to be begging. I got to come up with a plan. I got to find a way to handle this situation that's pending. Now, I'm going to read 4 through 7. I have decided what to do. I got it. So that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill, write 80. Pause. So, so here's the plan. The plan here is, okay, I'm going to go to these people that owe money to my masters, and I'm going to discount their debts. Weird plan, but that was his plan. I'm going to go and I'm going to discount his debts. Why? Why is he discounting the bills? He says so that they would receive him into their homes. Receive is welcome. So he has this ulterior plan going on. I'm going to go to their houses. I'm going to discount their debts so that they will see me as a just really friendly guy. So if I get kicked out, they'd be willing to let me stay with them. They would receive me into their homes. Okay, now we're going we're gonna to dig into eight because eight is, ju- is juicy. All right. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. When I first read this, I was wondering to myself, A, why is the master commending him if this dude is dishonest, right? That's the first thing that comes to my mind. This dude is dishonest, and I'm wondering, okay, because if I was the master, dude, you just caused me to lose money, actually. You told these people, hey, you owe 100? I just give him 50. That's good, Right? And I was, so I'm like, what is going on here? So I had to do some studying to understand why was the master not tripping? Instead, the master was commending him. Well, it was common for people in, in his position as a manager to get paid a commission for the things that he did. So if somebody owed 80 shekels of wheat, he collected 100. If somebody owed 50, he collected 100. He, so what was happening here was not that he was just altering the books. He was discounting his own commission off of what they owed. That's what he was doing. He was saying, okay, I'm going to discount. I'm going to sacrifice my own personal commission. The perks 
that I got from doing this job, I'm going to sacrifice it in order to build friends. Thus, that's why when the master looks at it, he's not tripping. The master's like, oh, for real? All right, I see what you did. See, the master calls his actions shrewd, shrewd meaning wise, because the fact that the manager sacrificed his own commission seemingly to make sure that the master's jobs were being taken care of and being met was seen as wise. It's something that companies always do. They'll sacrifice their profit and commission in order to make the sale. So the master sees this and he thinks it's, it's wise. Thus the manager appears wise to the master while trying to appear as a blessing to those that was in debt to the master. Thus, the reason for the discounts is that he would appear to be friendly. That's the reason for the discounts. He wanted to win friends for himself. He's securing his future. Then Jesus makes a side note. He's telling the story to his disciples, and then he comments on his own story, and, f- and the rest of that is him commenting on the story. He says, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. He's commenting on what's happening here. Jesus now is saying, hey, this was wise and this was shrewd. Now, the sons of the world, those those that are, in some translations say the sons of this age. Those are the people that are not in Christ. And the sons of light are those that are in Christ. And Jesus now compares the manager's actions to what our actions should look like. Here, Jesus is looking at the shrewdness or the wisdom behind the intentional sacrifice of the manager's commission so that he can be a blessing to others in order to win friends, though for selfish motives. Thus saying, even though the manager's actions flowed from dishonest, self-centered motives, which are indicative of this world or age, there was a thing or two for us to learn about being shrewdly intentional with how we steward God's resources in a way that is indicative of the kingdom of heaven of which we are the sons of light. Now, verse 8 builds the outline. Verse 9 gives the details for us to see this a little bit more clearly. Now, now I read like this. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now, this verse gives insight on God's intent for our motives of how we steward his resources. First off, unrighteous wealth. He's talking about money in general because this is all a side effect of this world. He says, give to Caesar's what to Caesar's, give to God what is God's. So money all in general, he's considering it unrighteous wealth in general. Not that it's a sin, but he's just calling it unrighteous wealth. Follow me? Okay. So then he says, make friends for yourself. He's realizing the reality that being a blessing to others shows that you can, that you care about them, thus opening up the door to friendship. Now, the manager wanted to open the doors of friendship for self-centered reasons. For us, the children of light should seek to use unrighteous wealth money, our perks and commissions that we get from living on this planet as a tool to open up the doors of friendship to others for different motives. Because then he says so. He said, he says, use the unrighteous wealth so, which implies a purpose, when it fails. It, 
this world, our agents, economic system, money, and everything that's not anchored to Christ. That's the it. When it fails, when it fails, thus, it's all dated. There's an expiration date on everything that's not rooted in and sprouting from Christ. So he's saying, listen, you have these motives that, 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 that go past when it all fails. And those murders are rooting in when he says, so that they would receive you into the eternal dwellings, receive again, welcome you. The eternal dwellings is the kingdom of heaven. So you have these motives that are centered around eternity when you're blessing people, when you're sacrificing the things that are of your own. You have motives that are eternity, that past when everything else fails. Thus, God intends for our heart behind how we steward his resources or money would involve the intentional sacrifice of money and or any perks or commission that we receive as a side effect of stewarding the various different amounts of his stuff that he has placed in our possession. And we're doing this as a foretaste of the selfless, sacrificial love found in the kingdom of heaven with the hope that the love of God will be seen and then join us together as friends in a fellowship that lasts for eternity because it's rooted in that very same love of God. And Christians aren't the only ones that bless people. We're not the only ones that, that, that help people out and that give money to people. The problem is this, or the difference is this, is that Secular charity is just for the here and now, but God-centered charity addresses the here and now with eternity in, in, in mind, right? It's the reason why we want to address the here and now, but our thoughts aren't just, it doesn't stop with the here and now. We're thinking about eternity. Verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he would hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, the big crescendo. He goes through this whole story talking about managers and owners and people owing money all the way to get to the point of you cannot serve God and money. The question is, are you serving God? Or are you serving money? That's the difference between the characters in the story and the people God is calling us to be. Money is one of the many gods of this age. If you are a son of this age, you will worship one or more of the many gods of this age, which almost always includes money. So the thing is, people find their identity in their God, their identity in in what they worship. Thus, if you serve money as your God, you will seek to identify yourself and others by how much of it or the things that it buys that they have. It's how you will determine your own personal worth and the worth of others. Money and things money buy will become the measuring tool to how we classify people. Thus, of someone that's poor, that's struggling, is no longer just someone that needs your help. They are lower class. The entire system of class that divides people on, the, on their economical status is a system that reflects the worship of money as God, thus identifying people and their value and their worth by that God. But the gospel eradicates that entire concept. 
It says your value isn't found in what you have or have not, but instead it's found in the God who has all because he has you. It tells the rich man that the key, the key to the kingdom of heaven is being poor in the spirit. And it tells the poor man that in Christ, you're rich, humbling one and lifting up the other to this even ground called the gospel. It gives value to the unvalued. We have this ministry here that I love, and it's called Dinner with the City. And it's dinner with the city, not just for the city. And the goal here is the fellowship the people of the city, and there's a specific focus on, on homeless people. We want to sit down. We want to eat with them, not just give them food and shove them out, but we want to get to know them. We want them to know and understand that you have way more value than just money. We don't want the relation, you to think that the only relationship that you have with people is them giving to you. But we so much believe that you have something valuable to contribute to the body, even in your financial status you're in right now. So we want to get to know you. We want to break bread with you. We want to talk with you. And we want you to feel comfortable with us. Because we don't want you valuing yourself based off of how much money you have or your current financial situation. This is the body, and we balance each other out. When you view life through the lenses of the flesh, things like gender, age, race, and class separate. But the gospel draws together and then balances out. The strong becomes the strength of the weak, and those who are listened to become the voice of those who are ignored. Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30. I want to look through that just for a bit. Now, here's another, another story. One of those stories where you have an owner that's giving out his stuff. And the thing here is that the owner is like, He's about to leave. He's about to go away. And then he says before he leaves, he's going to divvy up his, his assets to, the, to his people. He gives five talents. It's the story of the talent. He gives five talents to one, two talents to another, and one talent to another. And talents equals money. Some people read this and just think that they're talking about, hey, that's a talented guy. But talent was a unit of measure. So talent and the, the measure of money. So, so in the story, that's Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30. Here's one thing that's, that stood out to me. Verse 15, he says, and for the sake of this talk right here, we'll say the guy with the five talents represents the upper class because five talents in today's time is almost like a million dollars or so, right? Two talents is middle class, and we'll say one talent is the lower class, right? So in verse 15, he says that the owner divvied up the money and gave it to the different people according to their ability. With the, with the mindset of knowing that this owner represents God, the picture that you can get here is that, A, God not only knows your ability, but he created you and gave you that particular ability. So how God portions things out is all according to his sovereign purpose and sovereign plan. He's the one that's in control of everything. First Samuel 2 and 7, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. Everything is flowing how God is making things happen the way he wants to because he knows you way more than you know yourself. So the master gives out his money. He comes back later on and he says, I need to talk with these dudes about the money that I gave to him. The guy with the five talent, he comes and says, I flipped it and I made ten. Here we go. The guy with the two talent comes and says, I, I did the same thing. Here's four. Now, 
What I want to look at is what the guy with the one talent said. Let me finish. Let me finish that because that's that's important. The guy with the one talent, he had a response that was that was different. Hold on, let me share this up here. So the guy with the one talent, he comes up, and he's, it's time for him to talk about what he said. He said, so it said, he also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping what you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. 25, so I was afraid, and I went, and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. Again, with the concept and the idea of looking at the owner as God, the guy with the one talent had a poor view of who God was, leading to a lack of trust concerning God. The reason why I like this, this point of Scripture because it engages all of us at all levels. On one end, the rich are held accountable, but on the other end, no matter what level of God's stuff you've been given to steward, you're still held accountable for how you would steward those things in a way that brings fruit to the kingdom of heaven. So even the guy that had the, the least amount, he had this, this warped view of God where he, where he didn't trust them and figure out, I, I was too afraid to, to, to even invest. So the response of the master was, well, how come you didn't invest my stuff in the bank? And even with that, the bank that they're talking about isn't even a natural bank. They're talking about investing in the kingdom of heaven. In, in Matthew 16, he talks about how that we shouldn't store up our, our, our wealth and our treasures here on earth, but store them up in heaven, right? So he says, how come you didn't invest my money in the bank. And the, and the thought here is with the, the guy with the one is that even though you have a little bit of funds, I don't know how many of us found ourselves there where we felt this tugging on our hearts to be a blessing to somebody, but didn't do it because we looked at our funds and we said, I don't think I have enough to actually do it. I'll just pray for it. But if God is the one that is tugging your heart to be that blessing, that at that time of moment you chose to just serve money as opposed to God. The master's response to the servant was still to hold him accountable. And then in verse 30, he goes on and makes this picture that shows that he's talking about something eternal. He says he will cast them out to the place where weeping and ganashing. This is the idea behind classism. Classism is the product of the God of this age, separating and valuing people by how much money they have or have not. But the gospel calls different people of different economical statuses together, valuing them but not by what they have or by who has them, seeing how we all need each other to be a fully functional body. So I'm going to get ready to close this out as the band comes up. And I'm going to give some application points. 
as the band can get ready to come up. So what I'm not saying in, in talking about this, I'm not saying this. I'm not saying, okay, rich people, though they have a lot of money, sell all your stuff, give it to the poor, and try to be as poor as you can. That's not what I'm saying. Not that I'm saying is to the poor, get rich or die trying. I'm not saying that neither. I'm not just saying meet somewhere in, that, in this middle ground, and if we meet in the middle ground, we all, we'll be all good. I'm not saying that neither. In Galatians 2, verses 19 to 20, Paul says that he would die to the flesh so that he would live, or die to the law so that he would live to Christ. Then he says, no longer I that live, but Christ that lives inside of me. Then he said, now the life that I live in the flesh, I live to the glory of God. Point number one, die to your economical statuses. Let Christ live through you as a person of that economical status, regardless of where that falls. Number two, I spent a lot of time in the beginning painting the picture that we are way more rich than we actually think. But now I want to flip that around, and I want to say that God is the one that's rich, and all of us are poor. We're nothing without him. Then I want to flip it again and say, but in Christ, we are extremely rich. So point number two, view yourselves and others through the lenses of the gospel as valuable members of the body of Christ who use their finances to bless others, first, because of your economical status, second, regardless of your economical status. Trusting God as a slave to serving God, not money. Last point. People have a tendency to group together based off of what they hold in common. People with less money group up together. People with less money, people with races, they group together. There's this tendency to group together. Now in Acts 2, it talks about the fellowship of the early church and how even the fellowship in and of itself was so phenomenal that the, just the fellowship was drawing people into relationship with God just by seeing how they fellowship with one another. It said that they had all things in common. Fellowship. The Greek word for fellowship is koinonia. And the root word of koinonia is common. The word is koina, what means common. So here you say, you see that fellowship is oftentimes based off of what you have in common. But when you look at this group of people, they had very little in the flesh in common. It was different races. Some had grown up Jews. Some was, was Greeks. Different ages. Different economical status. Some was doctors and some was fishermen. Some was poor. They came from different parts of town. When you, and they, some was men. Some was women. When you look at them, they have very little in the flesh in common. The one thing that they had in common that brought their fellowship the way that it should look was the gospel. Point number three. Make sure that your fellowship with each other is rooted in the gospel, not the flesh. It's rooted in the gospel, not gender, not race, not class, not age. But make sure that our fellowship with one another is rooted in the gospel. So we're going to get ready to pray and do communion now. And what we want to do is just like this. As the band plays, as the deacons and the ushers come out,
least more than enough amount of people inside here to be able to group together, pray with one another, and break bread with one another together on the very thing that brought those disciples together. Regardless of age, regardless of race, regardless of social status, but centered solely around the gospel, what Christ has done on the cross for all of us. That's the thing that made the difference for those early saints, and it's the thing that still makes a difference with us now. When we miss that, we fall apart. Father, we thank you for how great you continue to be. We thank you for how wonderful you are. We thank you for the awesome work that you've done on the cross. I pray that the point and the heart behind what was spoken today and behind what's in your word, that you will sink it deep down to the very fibers of our beings, Lord. And that you will allow it to take root and sprout out, not just in how we fellowship with one another, but how we challenge things outside of the church, how we stand for you and how we fall in you. In you we live, in you we move, in you we have our being. Let's commune together. Come up the middle aisles, grab your cup, grab your bread, go back down the side aisles, and let's pray together.